The following content is explicit. It's Monday, August 13th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Peter struck, struck down, which I would love to discuss, but Omarosa, she hasn't stopped, does she? Omarosa telling us that Trump is a racist is like a psychic telling us OJ did it. Of course OJ did it. Doesn't really say much about your abilities of divination. The Omarosa basement tapes have been partially released. Long traded by bootleggers in the underground. Now they're out in a box set. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. I don't know if they hurt the president, but there's this weird dynamic going on. The more the White House attacks her and discredits her as a lowlife, Trump's words, or a loser, the worse she looks. That is true. But also, the worse they look. They hired this loser lowlife. They gave her more power than, perhaps, I will suggest this, more power than her CV and her personal qualities would argue that she deserved. It's not as if Omarosa went off track, because here's what she did. When you say, well, why did Omarosa earn the position to begin with? Well, here's why. We're going to do a little train simulation today in Canton, Ohio. She was Trump's hype man at rallies. If you're tired of being lied to, I need you to just stump with me. Stump. The crowd behind her, by the way, from stump. at this rally, didn't stump. seem that into it. And my ladies, you're going to say, choo-choo. Y'all ready? Weirdly, Trump supporters seem not to like being told what to do by a black woman. Listen, y'all got to stay with me. I'm going to say Trump, Trump, ladies. You're going to say choo-choo. I'm going to say Trump, train, ladies. You're going to say choo-choo. Well, the ladies did not choo-choo choose Trump. Trump lost the female vote to Hillary Clinton, 54 to 42. He lost the black women's vote to Hillary Clinton, 94% to 4%. And of course, among that 4%, the very conductor on the Trump train, who is now contending that she got railroaded. On the show today, I spiel about that conspicuous lack of Nazis. But first, he is a former Republican consultant. He was out early as a never-Trumper. He's a boisterous never-Trumper. He's good with a quip and the quill and the quiver full of arrows. Rick Wilson is here to argue everything Trump touches dies. Rick Wilson was one of the most prominent, vehement, earliest voices in the Never Trump movement. And when Never Trump became always Trump, Rick Wilson became ubiquitous. His new book is called Everything Trump Touches Dies. A Republican strategist gets real about the worst president ever. I like in Rick Wilson, I think his spirit animal is the mongoose because the mongoose can be deadly. It's slithery. It attacks the cobra, also a little furry. Hello, Rick. How are you? <laughs> These are all true, including the furry. I'm a hairy bastard. A little bit furry. I think it's nice. Some I perceive you as having a goatee, but here in person, I see it's more a full beard. That's it's a, more, yeah, it's a little I, lighter around the edges. I had to trim down the sort of Taliban going thing I had before the uh, before the book tour. So I want to get into a lot of different things, including uh, the, the bulk of the book is about your experience being a never Trumper and also uh, your your prescription for what we do. But first. Can we talk a little bit about your career as a Republican strategist? Sure. I think I knew this. You worked very closely with Giuliani to get elected mayor mm-hmm. of New York. Mm-hmm. And I voted for him twice, I believe. So good job. You, you did your job on me. Do my best. Um, yeah, I, I worked in uh, his re-election campaign in 97. I was one of his two media consultants. We made 
uh, I think about 70 TV ads for him that year. So the theory, or among the theories, there is the Rudy Giuliani never had uh, any moral bearing theory, but uh, I think a more plausible one is something like post- mayoralty post 9-11 he essentially becomes captured by the fox universe and he goes on speaking tour and he knows he's a performer and he knows how to please his audience and he becomes more and more a creature of that ecosphere so it's not exactly that all, all he is is a cynical jaded politician who only talks to the audience that's in front of him. But it's more like over the last 20 years, he's just not been living in the real world, which includes maybe some people who don't, who aren't, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid to begin with. I think the lure of Fox as a way to sell books, as a way to get, you know, uh, as a way to bump up your image is very strong for a lot of Republicans. And the odd thing about it is Fox is, is, Yes, it's ostensibly addressing a conservative audience, but the last couple of years has kind of demonstrated there's no real there. Right. Uh, there. There's no real ideological underpinning. Right. Because two years ago or four years ago, if somebody had had Trump's trade policies on the other side, on the Democratic side, they would have gone rip shit nuclear bomb on them. I mean, people forget during the Republican primary, the given was, well, Fox, we know Fox doesn't like Trump. We know Fox is anti-Trump. What happens if he gets the nomination? They're anti-Trump. People don't even remember that they Correct. were seen as anti-Trump. And, and look, Rupert and Roger both, I mean, Rupert more so, always was like, this, is, this guy's a jackass. And Rupert represents a, a character of person I met in this whole saga where I do a lot of fundraising with these very wealthy individuals who raise money for political super PACs. It, it kind of blew my brain open. And I, and I learned Rupert was one of these after this conversation. I sat down with a very wealthy hedge fund guy and I said, listen, Trump is a billionaire. And if he decides to put his own money in this, and this is a guy who was at the time supporting Ted Cruz. And I was mm-hmm. looking for any port in a storm because I knew these guys were not understanding what was happening to them. And I said, but he's a billionaire. He could put his own money in. And even though Mercer is going to help Ted, it, you really need to kick in. We're gonna, we got to go after this guy. And maybe we yeah. can do it in a way that doesn't hurt your guy. But this guy looks at me and he says, well, well hey, he goes, Rick, hold, hold on a minute. Wait a fucking minute. Donald Trump is not a billionaire. I'm a fucking billionaire. And this guy is a mini yeah. zeros billionaire, the legit kind of like, oh, I keep two of my jets. You know, I keep, I keep one in Teterboro and one in Connecticut. You know, that sort of shit. And it kind of like shocked me for a moment. And then I re- and then I heard later from a lot of people around Rupert. It was like Rupert's contempt of Trump is boundless. So another question I have, though, when you went to the money men, these billionaires, these big donors, and you urged them to back someone other than Trump to stop Trump, and they didn't, and you have parts in the book where, you know, they would donate and just send your reply like, ah, fuck me, what am I going to do, right? Oh, now, yeah, they're, yeah. they're, they're but now. But the question is... It did work out for them. I mean, in in terms of their bottom line, they might have some sort of love for America's reputation in the world as well. I'm not saying they don't. They might not like certain policies, but you get to be a billionaire by making billions of dollars and he's helping people make billions of dollars or he's helping them keep their money at least. Let's put it this way. That tax bill was crafted, you know, in Mitch McConnell's office by a bunch of lobbyists, including some friends of mine. Yeah. And it was a it was a McConnell product and 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 you can set aside the whole nature of the tax. Look, I'm a Republican. I, from an economic perspective, I believe in a low, fair, flat tax system that treats everybody equitably. But I can say, having read this bill and having known the guys who wrote it, mm-hmm. this was meant to help 150 people on the tip of that island over there 
and a few of their corporate clients. Right. And when it plays out over time, you know, the Trump bonuses, those things have been washed away by baseline inflation and, and energy prices, okay? They were always just a scam. It was always just a joke. I don't like crony capitalism. This bill picked 150 winners uh-huh. who get 85-plus percent of the net benefit of this bill. Yeah. I'm sorry. That doesn't strike me as a truly conservative thing. A tariff to ha- that U.S. Steel gets to have veto power over who gets an exception, that doesn't not sound like picking winners and losers. No, it's it's picking winners and losers. And amazingly, you'll, I, 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 you'll find that steroids these, these, agree that these no people, and, and a lot yeah. of these guys, I mean, the, the, the Rosetta Stone of this is the Trump inaugural committee. Mm-hmm. Okay. Go back and look. These guys from the coal industry, day after the election, they're stroking checks to the inaugural committee. And I I heard a great story that one of the coal executives, before the inaugural committee was even fully legally booted up, had a courier trying to deliver a million-dollar check. Like, he was trying to find where their office was. Well, it's the coal industry. They communicate like it's 1962. I'll send a a Pony Express rider, and then the town crier will hear. Why do I know that the coal industry is not on Snap? (laughs) What do you think, messaging-wise, what do you think of Democrats' embrace of the term democratic socialist? Good luck. Mm-hmm. Because Americans love socialism, but they don't like the word socialism. They love Medicare. They love Medicaid. They love Social Security. They love all the safety net stuff. Right. But but is it does it still have that toxicity? If you've got an Ocasio, Ocasio, however you pronounce it, Ponytail Guevara, as uh-huh. I call her, <laughs> how many districts in America can she scale to? Yeah. How many congressional districts? And I can tell you what the number is roughly. I did some math on it. About 17. And they are in New York, outside of Massachusetts, in Bo- outside of Boston, Massachusetts, Los Angeles, Seattle, Oregon, you know, places yeah. like that. Bay Area. Bay Area, right. Maybe Miami. Mm-hmm. couple places. Non-African-American progressive seats. There's about 17 of them. Uh, just some rough math. How many places can Connor Lamb scale to? About 100. Right. Yeah, what do you think Georgia's Stacey Edwards is? Well, here's the thing. It's still Georgia, but the donut, the county surrounding Atlanta, they are on the south side of the donut, African-American. Yeah. On the north side of the donut, except for the northwest corner, very wealthy, very white, very educated, professional class. The northwest corner up there is Trump country. Now, the rest of Georgia, except for Savannah, and a little bit around Athens, but those are de minimis, is pretty damn red. It's pretty damn red. And, you know, there's some African-American voters in the southwest corner of the state. So she has a possibility to address them. There's a lot riding on whether or not the Republican candidate, you know, keeps his shit together. Mm -hmm. There's also, uh, as with a lot of guys who win the primary because of being Trump, Trump can undo their victory with a dumb tweet. So let's just say he decides, I'm going to get in this race. I'm going to treat it seriously. I'm going to run ads in Atlanta that are communicating that I am not a crazy person, that I'm an acceptable choice for moderate Republicans. And Trump comes out one day and tweets something crazy about Mexicans or African-Americans or talks about, you know, why won't those darkies take a knee, you know, or some racist crap. Or as we call it Thursday. Right, right. right. I mean, look, the the guy is always one tweet away. From like race war. Yeah. It's like Cartman. You know, race war. He's always he's always got this horrifying, you know, potential to do something truly terrible. And to say something in a way, and, and I've I actually 
I spoke to a former senior White House person who said to me one day, he said, if people heard him talk. This White House. Yeah, Trump this White House. Yeah, yeah. If people heard the way he talks about women and African-Americans and other minorities, they would burn this building to the ground. So do are the uh, you're very good at the form of the eight minute hit on cable. And I think the Trump administration thinks they are, too. Are they? God, no, they're awful. They think they are. I sit down with these guys and I can tell you what Jason Miller is going to say. I can rehearse word for word in my head. If there's preparation, it's that I know what Jason Miller or Paris Denard or Jeffrey Lord or any of the other guys is going to say. Yeah. Uh, they're always having to run in a narrow lane. They can't. It's like every time Steve Cortez and I go on together, the guy looks like he's about to shit a diamond because he's so uncomfortable. Yeah. This press operation in the White House has three ways it's a shit show. One, the people that are out there front and center are typically terrible at what they do. And they've built this culture of aggressive mistrust in the press. So they're always going to be under the gun from here on. The second thing is they're often defending the utterly indefensible. And the third thing is they've turned the White House press corps into this alt-right circus. So you've got, you know, Mike Cernovich, you know, from Human Floundered Hybrid Weekly uh, with a press pass. And you've got... Jack Posobiec, whoever the hell he works for, and Gateway the Pundit, well, presumably, <laughs> and Gateway Pundit, and all these other crazies in there now, and and you know they they have a few they rely on like John Gizzy. They'll ask John a question to like break the flow right. of everybody else, and you know it's their prerogative to do that, but it doesn't make their communications more effective. It just like try it's like it's like oh I'm going to put a bandaid on this even though we haven't like stopped the actual bleeding of the artery under it. Yeah. So we have a threat to our immune system from one side and the bleeding of the artery from the other. This is why they call it the body politic, and it doesn't seem too healthy. And it's also why that everything Trump touches dies. That is the name of Rick Wilson's book. Rick, great to meet you. Thank you so much. Likewise. And now the spiel. A negligible Nazi number. The third-rate Third Reich. Nazi redux sucks. And of course it does. And you should have known it would have. Because if you were like me, you were reading Amber Hurl, who looks into Nazi groups, and she was writing on Lawfare. She rounded up and talked to actual experts. And the actual experts beforehand were telling us that the idea of real Nazis, they might concentrate the mind, but their actual concentration in the populace is quite tiny. Here's Hurl in the wake of doxings, the civil rights lawsuits, and significant internal rifts. The white nationalist movement has lost over the past year all of the momentum it seemed to be gaining at the time of Charlottesville. At this stage, it's actually imploding. So while the showing up of American white supremacists in the nation's capital should be taken seriously, we should also have a realistic assessment of what the movement as it stands can actually pull off. So the facts are, I suppose, since she predicted low turnout, they weren't facts yet. They were just the best evidence. They supported an expectation that the rally would fizzle. But aside from the experts, there were no stakeholders in the showdown who had any incentive to treat a possible white supremacist or Nazi rally as something other than a sizzling threat. And, of course, the media saw it as a chance to re-examine one of the president's lowest points, which is saying something. So NBC reported on the actual event somewhat dolefully. Organizers of the white nationalist rally expected up to 400 demonstrators. In the end, only a couple dozen showed up. 
But why would you ever credit the Nazi PR machine? Hurl in Lawfare quoted white nationalist researcher, meaning he researches white nationalists, Vegas Tenold, who said that he would be shocked if more than 25 attended. That seems to be right around the number. Think about how much power we have given to these boobs. What an outsized place we continue to grant them in our consciousness and in the narrative. I'm not dismissive of their ability to do harm. Like any group of armed thugs with grievances, actual bona fide right-wing hate groups seem to be a bit on the rise, or maybe they were at least until Charlottesville, and they can act as terrorist organizations, and they do need to be policed. And by policed, I literally mean policed, not, you know, policing speech or policing dress or whatever verb form of police you mean besides being the actual police and busting them. But they don't need to be elevated to a place where we're irrationally scared of them, these brown shirts and khaki pants jerks. They're, they're just really an angry exception. I don't mind the occasional vice report detailing just who they are, why they think, what they think. But please, make it clear that they're morons. Don't let them rope in others, just themselves, right around the neck. Don't give them a platform. Give them a scaffold. It doesn't seem that hard. And we in the media, we've been doing this for years. The media, in coverage of Nazis or Lyndon LaRouche acolytes or other groups that we could say they're interesting and should be heard, usually we say they need to be ignored, and they are ignored because they're toxic. NPR interviewed Jason Kessler, the leader of the Unite the Right rally, and NPR came under a lot of criticism for giving him free publicity. Well, judging by the pathetic turnout... Among the Nazis, I guess NPR's reach isn't that strong to some potential Nazi fence-sitters in the audience, you know? Some guy who's listening to his NPR, thinking about maybe going to a Nazi rally, leaning toward picking up a tiki torch. But first, I want to hear what Bob Mondello thought about Imran Hawk's inspirational tale of Urdu-speaking immigrants in Norway. We get so crazy about Nazis. We lose perspective. I get it. Burned six million of my people once. Shame on, well, shame on the Nazis. Fuck them. But it's understandable that it would shock us a year ago that hundreds of actual white nationalists, among them actual Nazis, would actually show up en masse. And I understand that was news and we couldn't not pay attention. But since then, we've paid a bit too much attention. And I think some of it has to do with the word Nazi. So we have soup Nazis and grammar Nazis and phrases like this by a mommy blogger who was prescribed Vicodin while pregnant, quote, as someone who will only take Tylenol when pregnant, I'm kind of a Nazi about following all the guidelines for meds and food. There's no such thing as a following medical guidelines Nazi. That is not a kind of Nazi. Dr. Mengele, famous doctor, was not known for following medical guidelines. Quite the contrary. There are yoga Nazis. There are these people. Vegan Nazis. It's a term we've all heard before to describe militant vegans or even non-militant vegans. So my point is, Nazi has become a word like superhero or troll. It is an actual mythical creature who has a meaning in the real world, but we forget, or maybe some of us forget, that unlike trolls or superheroes, Nazis actually started off as real people. So when the real ones do show up in a real place, of course we're going to say, whoa, that's an actual freaking Nazi. And as far as the white supremacists, there's white supremacy all around us. But there was a time, it was about 10 years ago, or maybe 15, depending on what your undergraduate major was, when white supremacists clearly meant... You know, a Klansman, the worst 
kind of person in America. And then since then, white supremacy has gone from meaning the worst people America has ever minted to meaning everything about America as defined by certain critical race theorists. So don't begrudge them their insight, but it is kind of odd and maybe honestly confusing to some when you use the same phrase for evil incarnate and everyone all the time. Now, there was a time also when we did talk about the the old school white supremacist, the blatant out and proud, you're inferior because of your race, and I'll say it out loud, those type of racists. And how we talked about them was in phrases like this. Well, you know, it's the more subtle forms of racism that are in some ways worse than an out-and-out Klansman or a Nazi. Take what Judy Woodruff on the NewsHour said. The small slights that some say are more insidious than the overt racial tensions that could be seen and observed by all. Yes, the slights, the unconscious bias, the dog whistles, the unacknowledged assumptions and discriminations. You know, in many ways, they're worse. Oh, no, no, actually, that, that was a Nazi. That was an actual Nazi. They're the ones who are worse. Calling someone articulate can be a loaded statement. Chanting, Jews will not replace us, that's closer to a loaded weapon. But you know what? I think the idea of subtle racism being the worst kind of racism, I think it's actually right. I think there's a lot to it. And it's not because the subtle racism, the slights, the microaggressions, if you will, it's not because they're more virulent or more dangerous. It's that they're just so much more pervasive. It's like that old line about alcohol being the most destructive drug. Really, it's worse than crack? It's worse than heroin? Well, the people who will say it will say, yes, it is worse because it's so widespread. And it's also true that extremely virulent, overt racists give cover to those who exhibit low-grade bigotry. Now, I'm not talking about so-called microaggressions here. I'm talking about, well, I don't wear a pointy hood, but I think it's okay to yell, speak English at my fellow Americans. But this is the real way racism harms America. This is the most tangible way. It's not terrorist extremist groups. And the most tangible way is not microaggressions. It's that racial animus and white grievance became the single biggest factor in Donald Trump's rise to the presidency. That some small fraction of Trump supporters are stupid enough or maybe in touch with their animosity enough to come out and give the Nazi salute and rank the races by IQ, that's not really the problem. You can say they represent the deeper problem, but we need an actual Klansman to demonstrate Trump's racism like we need, say, a former reality show fame junkie to tell us that she has heard secret tapes that indicate Trump might be a racist. White grievance... Racial panic, that showed up in much of the 46% of America that voted for Trump and maybe even most of the 41% that still say they approve of him. And those people attend the rallies and they are among the base and they go out to the polling booths. Those racially aggrieved Americans are still showing up even if the literal Nazis are hiding. And that's it for today's show. Everything just producers Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader touch turn into a mellifluous, concordant symphony, but they have synesthesia. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Everything he touches turns to pewter. Great if it started out as tin. 
kind of sucks if it was gold, but really good for minting Civil War chess sets. The gist. Everything we touch turns to corduroy, kind of a wide well, but no matter the direction you stroke it, it's always against the grain, so you get that shaded effect like a well-manicured Major League Baseball outfield. You know what I'm talking about. It's kind of cool, unique for a podcast. Oomperoo, deperoo, duperoo, and thanks for listening.